From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, sclerosing therapy for orbital lymphangiomas. They're benign, but they're really destructive locally because they invade into the surrounding tissues. We usually diagnose them by radiographic evidence. Unless they're very anterior, then you can just see that ball of grapes look. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Rob Schwartz declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. Steve Schwartz declares paid research for Genentech, consulting fees from Novartis, grants from Alcon, Bausch & Lomb, and OSI iTech, and equity ownership of Pfizer. You can now get Category 1 CME credit for listening to A Scene From Here. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the link marked CME. For right now, you'll need to print the quizzes out and mail them in. We hope to have electronic versions of the quiz available by the end of this year. Big news for iTunes users. You can now get As Seen From Here through iTunes. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the iTunes Users link. Then click the subscribe button and you're done. Vascular and lymphatic lesions of the orbit are difficult to treat. In other subspecialties, sclerosing therapy has been demonstrated to have benefit. Today, Rob Schwartz talks about his study of sclerosing therapy as first-line treatment for low-flow vascular lesions of the orbit. First of all, by way of background, let me ask you to describe the disease process of orbital hemangiomas. Okay. Uh, just to give you a broader a definition of it first, it's, a, it's one of the vascular malformations, and they tend to uh, group them in three types. There's a no-flow, which is similar to what with angiomas in. Type 2 would be a venous flow, and that can either be dispensable or non-dispensable. And type 3 would be an arterial flow with, as we know, low or high flow. Um, then you classify orbital vascular lesions in superficial, deep, or retral bulbar. So then getting to orbital lymphangiomas, they're um, benign hamartomatous tumors, um, and they mostly are made up of vascular channels. They're benign, but they're really destructive locally because they invade into the surrounding tissues, and they generally comprise about 2% of all the orbital tumors that that are actually biopsied, but we usually diagnose them by radiographic evidence. Unless they're very anterior, then you could just see that ball of grapes look in the conjunctiva. What are the indications for treating these lesions? Decrease in vision, increase in intraocular pressure, diplopia or any other visual abnormalities, risk of amblyopia when it gets towards the eyelid, and of course, cosmetic deformity. It can also locally cause a hemorrhage and proptosis, and that can cause some permanent visual loss. Can these lesions cause proptosis in the absence of hemorrhage? Yes, just by filling up the space. If they're a large enough mass, whether it be retrobulbar or peribulbar, it'll just push the globe outward. For patients with elevated pressures resulting from these lesions, what's the mechanism by which these lesions cause an elevation in pressure? It's direct compression, usually. What is conventional therapy for treating these lesions? Serial surgical excisions, and that's not very conservative, and I say serial because you never fully remove all of the tumor, and usually you have to keep going back in and destroying more of the normal tissue as well as the tumor. They bleed excessively. There's also been treatment that's 
pretty much unsuccessful with radiation. They tried needle decompression. There was more bleeding with that and problems. And there was some success with systemic and some su success with intralesional steroids. It's not fantastic. But I think the mainstay has been surgical resection. The, my mentor, when I was a fellow, would always call this tumor, uh, unfortunately, a stage exoneration. You just keep going in and taking out more and more until eventually there's not much left. Have sclerosing agents been used prior to this study for treating these lesions? It has been. Uh, you find it in some of the OMFS, the oral maxillar facial literature, uh, especially in Asia. They use it in Japan and China, not very much in this country. Some of the stuff in Japan hasn't been FDA approved. The two main ones I found in the literature were OK432. That's a sclerosing agent that's made from group A strep bacteria. There's a pretty good study coming out of Japan in, in a pediatric surgical journal showing some success with 64 orbolymphangiomas, but they're not uh, not just orbo, take that back, they're anywhere on the, the face and in the mouth. Sodium tetradecal sulfate, I think it was called, it was, uh, was also tried, but there was a very mild success with it and it's a really small study. So we chose sodium moriorate. The way it works is by flebosclerosis, and it just um, destroys the endothelial and the red blood cells, causes the platelet cascade to start working around the endothelial cells. The main concern we had when we started the study was would it travel intravascularly and end up in the cavernous sinus. What is sodium moriorate? It's sodium moriorate 5%. It's a sclerosing agent chemically. It's not made by a bacteria. What else has sodium moriorate therapy been used for? It's been used in other kind of vascular lesions. It's been used most uh, commonly in esophageal varices, and that's pretty much where we got it from, the literature from the esophageal varices. That's what prompted us to use it. Rob, can I have you describe the design of the study? It was a uh, prospective interventional um, case series study. We had patient population, seven patients for sample size. Six had orbital lymphangiomas, and one had uh, a cavernous hemangioma of the bone. The demographics of the study, there was three male and four female, so pretty evenly distributed. The age distribution was 17 to 57 with an average age of 33. Six had, like I mentioned, diagnosis of orbital lymphangioma, one with the cavernous hemangioma in the bone or otherwise under the intraosseous hemangioma. Three of them were on the right side and four were on the left side. The disease duration uh, ranged from four months to 38 months, averaging 17. Six of the seven were previously attempted at debulking surgically. One was not. There was essentially no change with the visual acuity um, before the injections. It was averaging 20-90 after 20-80. There was very little change with intraocular pressure. Rob, can I have you walk me through the administration of sodium moriate? You take uh, two syringes, attach them to a stopcock, so you can change the valve on it. One will be a 1cc syringe, and the other one is a 3cc syringe. On the 1cc syringe, in the article, there's actually a photo of the, of the two syringes connected. Essentially, you use one syringe to withdraw. You, you, um, in, you place the needle intralesionally. This is for an anterior lesion. You see that bundle of grapes in the conjunctiva, that purplish bundle, and you just put the needle right into the lesion and start withdrawing when there's nothing left to withdraw or if you don't get any type of fluid back. Then I rotate the stopcock forward so that now I have the sodium moriorate in the 1cc syringe activated. 
I inject 0.1 cc at a time. Once I inject 0.1 cc, I remove the needle and then replace it several millimeters over to the next bundle and inject again. Anywhere from one to six injections, averaging like two and a half injections per patient. Does the patient find it painful? Yes. It's very painful, actually. That's, that was one of the drawbacks for it. All the patients were given some form of pain control after the procedure because they were in pain. Whether it was narcotic or non-narcotic, they were all given some form of pain control. Prior to injecting it, I placed a dropper of paracaine in and I put 4% lidocaine jelly on a cottonoid pledget and held it with direct pressure onto the lesion that I was about to inject that the total amount of anesthetic that was given to the patient. Very rarely did I have to inject any type of local anesthetic. Usually it was just direct pressure with a pledget. Was the treatment different for the cavernous hemangioma? Usually treatment for that is because it's more of a high-flow lesion and they tend to bleed a lot during surgery. Once you uncap the bone, so you send them for uh, selective embolization through interventional radiology, and we did. Within 24 hours, brought the patient to the operating room, started to uncap the bony mesh, and it just bled profusely. It had a lot of problems stopping the bleeding, eventually stopped it, closed, and sent the patient out of the OR. Two weeks later, we reattempted, came back down intraorbitally, it was in the very posterior orbit, and injected directly in between the mesh of the bone into the vascular lesion, 0.1 cc, two separate aliquots of the sodium moiurate. The whole thing involuted immediately on contact. We just scooped out the rest of the bone, decompressed the orbit, and there was virtually no bleeding at all. It was incredible. Some of your treatments were done under angiographic guidance. Is that right? Just one, actually, of the, because there was only one that was very posterior we just couldn't get to, and that was done under fluoroscopy. The patient was given a, a light MAC anesthesia, just to relieve anxiety. And under fluoroscopic guidance, the lesion was noted and we were able to see the flow of the lesion and inject directly into the lesion because it was in the very posterior orbit. How did the patients do? What were your results? The patient did rather well. Um, four of the six patients with these anterior tumors had a three plus score. We graded them cosmetically one, two, or three. One would mean that they just had worsening of the lesion. It got bigger. Two would mean there was no change. And three, there was an improvement. It was smaller, notably to the patient. Um, it was subjective. So they, four of the six had a three plus score with almost complete resolution of the lesion, both radiographically and clinically. This is a clinically of the anterior component of it. And two of the six remaining had a two-plus score. When I say six, I'm only counting the orbolymphangioma patients. Um, the visual acuity and the intraocular pressures, were, they were unchanged. They, there was not much of a statistical significant for them. For the, um, for the cavernous hemangioma, it was a pretty significant change. Uh, there was a decrease in intraocular pressure um, of, uh, it was five. Her tail measurement dropped back because the orbit was decompressed four millimeters. And the vision, which was worsenly, uh, worsening from 2080 um, post-op after within the week, it was 2030. The um, exophthalmus for the other six lymphangiomas were not really very significant, but about a one and a half millimeter change. So the percentage, the average percentage of regression of orbital lymphangiomas were about 50%. Rob, how long was your follow-up? One, it was basically one to two years. We averaged 19 months for follow-up. What complications were encountered? The worst one was one case had an intraorbital hemorrhage. There wasn't enough of a rise in pressure drop in vision 
that warranted any type of cantotomy or immediate attention. We just watch the patient really carefully every day, and it resolved spontaneously, basically within a week. There was no permanent damage from that. Almost every patient that had the anterior lesions, ones around the conjunctiva, got a mild keratopathy. So we started washing the, uh, the corneas down with BSS to help prevent that. Gave the patient artificial tears to take at home six times a day, every day, and they were gone within a week, the, the keratopathy that was present. Um, and, of course, all the patients had pain immediately after the, after the procedure, and anywhere from two to four hours of pain. One patient developed a symblepharon after repeated injections inferiorly. It was a patient with a very significant size tumor um, developed a symblepharon into the inferior conj, and that, that was it for complications. From what I understand, one of the concerns with these sorts of agents is that they've been implicated in an increase in intraocular pressure. How did your patients do from an intraocular pressure standpoint? Uh, there was no significant change in the pressure in, in the pressures at all. They were before the procedure of fifteen averaging fifteen intraocular pressure and after average exactly the same since these lesions often communicate with the cavernous sinus, how concerned were you with thrombosis? At first, we were really uh, concerned with it, and we were taking really small steps, injecting very small amounts very anteriorly just on direct vision and then realized that the endothelial destruction was immediate and very local, and it didn't really spread much. There is always a concern for thrombosis that's in the literature. We didn't note any of it. Um, we just noted immediate uh, destruction of the endothelial layer, immediate destruction of the lesion, and there was no spread of it. Since the propensity of the lesions in this study were anterior lesions, how would you handle posterior lesions differently? The the case with the fluoroscopic guidance was a good way to go with it. I would handle a posterior lesion with fluoroscopic guidance or direct visualization in a surgical field. So I'd either directly open the orbit up, head posteriorly, and when I'd see it under direct visualization, I'd inject the sodium aurate or with fluoroscopic guidance. Are there different agents that might be more apt for use in posterior cases? I think that they're virtually the same, whether you're using it for an anterior or posterior lesion, the fact that the sodium moiety disintegrates the endothelial layer so quickly and so locally, I, I'd prefer using that in the posterior orbit as well. Are there patients who would be particularly suited for this sort of therapy? I would say any patient that presents with orbital lymphangioma or any type of a low-flow vascular lesion, I consider it very high on my treatment list. Nowadays, we're heading more and more towards minimally invasive procedures, so when there's a chance to avoid an invasive surgery that usually is needed to be repeated, I would opt for it. Of course, selective embolization for some of the vascular lesions is always an option. That's a good one. Uh, but I'd consider this pretty highly on my treatment list. Outside of the context of this study, Rob, if a patient with this sort of lesion comes to you in, in your practice, what do you do these days? Well, again, these are not very common le um, tumors. So when they do come, they've either seen a whole few people and have a lot of information at hand already, or there's just not many of them coming. But I always offer this treatment first with surgery. I always let them know that there's a treatment option that's non-surgical. I can do this. I tend not to offer the steroids or any of the other treatments, a CO2 laser or anything else. I just let them think about either sodium moiety injections, especially if it's an anterior lesion.
it's so much easier of a decision than, oh, I let them know from the start I can offer them the surgical excision, but I kind of let them decide and we decide together. If it's a child, it's a lot harder to do in the office, obviously, and we'd have to take them to the OR anyway. But one of the pluses of doing this versus surgery, again, is not having to undergo anesthesia. But if it is a child, you do have to have some form of anesthesia. Rob, what's your advice for clinicians who might want to try out this therapy? I'd advise them to start with anterior lesions that you can see before heading posteriorly in the orbit. Um, And again, at first, just do 1.1 cc aliquot of it and see how the patient reacts and see how the tumor reacts and and stay superficial with it um, and just go slow. I think it's a great option that hopefully more and more people will start using. Rob Schwartz, thank you very much. Wonderful. Thanks again. Robert Schwartz is Assistant Clinical Professor of Ophthalmology at the Jewel Stein Eye Institute at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA in Los Angeles, California. His paper, Sclerosing Therapy as First-Line Treatment for Low-Flow Vascular Lesions of the Orbit, appears in the February 2006 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. And now, a question from a listener. Pete Sanders, chief of the eye section at the VA hospital in Boise, Idaho, writes, A question for your retina experts. Should intravitreal injections of anti-VEGF agents and steroids be given by general ophthalmologists? To answer that question, I spoke with Steve Schwartz, no relation to our first guest. Steve is assistant professor of clinical ophthalmology at the Bascom Palmer Eye Institute in Miami, Florida. I think that certain comprehensive ophthalmologists, by all means, can do this. I think that, uh, in general, the the technical component of performing the intravitreal injection is probably the uh, least demanding. The, uh, the the major concerns that I can see are diagnosis, decision for treatment, when to initiate treatment, when to continue treatment, when to stop treatment, and uh, recognition of potential complications. So what are the diagnostic tools that an ophthalmologist would have to feel comfortable with in order to feel confident giving an intravitreal injection? Realistically, the uh, standard of care certainly for exudative uh, age-related macular degeneration includes both fluorescein angiography and optical coherence tomography. So any comprehensive ophthalmologist who is uh, comfortable with interpreting these tests uh, is well on his way. And what are the complications that the ophthalmologist would have to at least feel comfortable that he can recognize in order to feel confident doing this sort of procedure? The major complication of an intraocular injection uh, is probably endophthalmitis. And the incidence of endophthalmitis after an intravitreal injection is probably in the range of 1 in 1,000, so similar to cataract surgery. Although clearly triamcinolone, as opposed to any of the anti-VEGF agents can layer out in the anterior chamber and create a pseudohypopion, which does uh, complicate the differential diagnosis somewhat. So from a technical standpoint, there's no question that a, a comprehensive ophthalmologist who's comfortable doing things like cataract surgery or anterior chamber taps should have no problem technically doing this sort of procedure. It's a question of a preoperative evaluation, of postoperative management, and of recognition of complications. I, I would agree. I think clearly that uh, phaco emulsification is more technically demanding than an intravitreal injection. 
Um, I'm more concerned about, uh, again, diagnosis and, and, and management decisions and post-operative or, or post-injection decisions than I am with, uh, with the actual injection procedure. Do you see these treatments becoming so mainstream that they become part of general ophthalmology? Well, I think clearly the uh, incidence of coronal neovascularization is increasing. And it's increasing because the, uh, the population is aging and the first wave of the baby boomers just turned 60. So realistically, you're only going to be seeing more and more coronal neovascularization. Similarly, you're probably only going to be seeing more and more in terms of diabetic retinopathy, and there is a uh, because the incidence of diabetes is increasing, and there is a an expanding role for intravitreal agents in diabetic macular edema and probably proliferative diabetic retinopathy. So as these diseases become more prevalent. I think there's certainly more opportunity for comprehensive ophthalmologists to manage these conditions, uh, particularly depending on what part of the country you practice in. And clearly there are people in more rural situations where referral to a retinal specialist may not be quite so easy. So, so I think in a, in a situation where uh, the nearest retinal specialist may be a considerable distance away, that not only might it be desirable for comprehensive ophthalmologists to become good and proficient in intravitreal injections that may be necessary. Steve, thank you very much. Oh, that's my pleasure. Ask questions of Dr. Schwartz or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines. In the United States, dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial, 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the New Media Project of the NYU School of Medicine and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.